Hi, welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is uh, Gary Newbold, and you might remember him from a previous episode. And uh, I've got him back today, and we're going to talk a bit about um, buying better, buying less, buying uh, better, buying once, the whole concept of quality and how to tell what quality is. So, Gary, would you like to reintroduce yourself, so to speak? Yes, good morning, Nick. Nice to talk to you again. Um, I have a, a business in England called English Utopia, predominantly manufacturers of outer clothing. Uh, however, that's that that's growing. Um, I've been doing this for nearly 10 years, been in the industry for over 30 years, and um, not much more to say other than that. Well, I mean, really, there's a, a lot more to say, isn't there? Because I'm being, honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. being in the industry is, in many ways, a bit of a round description. Um, because the way you do things, you are both the designer, the cutter, the yeah. buyer. Yeah. So you see all sides of the process. Yes. Yeah. Typical small business, really. Um, <clears throat> frankly, the only reason that I can have a small manufacturing brand is because I do the conceptualize and I do the design, I do the pattern making and I do the cutting. If one were to imagine how much that would cost in a startup situation, um, in terms of salaries for design input, for pattern making, etc., um, you would probably be looking at a sum of money that would make it prohibitive for for a lot of people to start a brand. Certainly, unless you were receiving um, a healthy wad of cash from some somewhere. Um, but so having those skills enables me to do this. The bigger problems come if we if we expand and uh, how I manage those things then. But um, hopefully, if that's the case, then there will be sufficient capital to be able to support the extra help that we will need. But for the time being, that's what we do. Very much artisanal. <laughs> because you're you're working very small now, but um, sort of twenty years ago, you were you were a cog in a larger machine and was that very different yes that was um i i, I imagine you're referring to my time as um head of design at barber yeah and um yeah that that was um a very different world um to the one i'm in now where your your tasks your job was quite specific and uh I think it's the only time in my life where I couldn't quite believe how many people there were around me to do stuff. Um, it took quite a while to get used to that, um, that I didn't actually have to do everything. Um, so um, being in that corporate environment, was uh, it took some getting used to. Um, I enjoyed my time at Barber. Um, ultimately, I felt that you reach a point where you think about your own character, about your own aspiration. And whilst I had six or seven good years there, it, it wasn't 
how I saw the rest of my career panning out. Um, I didn't really see how I would ultimately be happy in the industry unless I was creating and doing my own thing. And that, that, as you know, will always present its own challenges about how you can do that, how you can get started, how you can finance it. Um, I mean, I, I think I earn more from what I take out of my, from what I take out of my business now, I, I earn about the same as I did when I was 18. <laughs> um so that that's one of the big differences you could go to the cash machine when i worked at barbara and always know there was some money in the bank um these days the business comes first and um you know i, I just take what i need really but a lot happier hmm. now am i right in thinking that when you were working at barber you were designing to a cost whereas now making high-end outerwear the principle was sort of kind of turned on its head yes i would say that's pretty much true i mean in, in the early days when i was at barber um it took a while for us to figure out the direction that we wanted the barber brand to go and um, for a short while, there was this sort of um, dualistic, if that's that right word, strategy of um, not being quite sure whether we wanted to be a global luxury brand, probably following in the footsteps of Burberry that had actually got there before us, or should I say Bar um, Burberry had managed to retain, sustain their status as a luxury brand um barber by contrast were perhaps knocking on the door certainly in in mainland europe um germany scandinavia it was pretty much seen as a sort of um yeah i would say luxury brand and so the other strategy was to broaden the appeal of the brand simply by through volume really um and of course if that's the route you want to take then price has to be a a greater consideration there's a, there's a very direct correlation between <clears throat> the retail price that you charge and the number of people that will buy it um and over over the time i was there the the idea to reinforce that luxury brand status became perhaps less important and what became more important was that um barber expanded rapidly into more markets with more products and um who's to say they were wrong um they now have a a global turnover in excess of 250 million euros um, when I joined, it was 28 million. And when I left, it was in 2006, it was about 60 million. So uh, it's, it's a completely different business than the one I knew. And um, one would say, certainly in 
in the world of fashion, it's a global brand. And I don't want oh, to make any enemies, but it's not a global luxury brand. No, there's certainly a, a wide selection of articles sold under the Barber name now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The one strategy, one, one thing that was said right from when I joined in 1999 was the, the, the CEO wanted to be able to dress a person in Barber, the full wardrobe. That was a something that they wanted to achieve so as you know the core product was and always will be based around basically three wax jackets and expanding out from there their aspiration was that you could buy anything that you wear and i think that's probably true now i can't actually think of a an article of clothing that you can't buy from them unless you're into scuba diving <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's it is uh, a lifestyle brand i suppose now yeah so, uh, yeah yes it is very much so yeah yeah i've always found it a bit strange that people sort of want to go to a specific brand for all their lifestyle needs but maybe it's comforting in some way yeah i know it's um I, I must agree with you that it's not something I fully understand. Um, I can only see it perhaps as something to do with trust. So you've bought one product, it was good, it performed or you looked great or felt great in it. And there's a subliminal trust that means that when you want to buy, for example, a, a shirt, you subconsciously think, well, my barber jacket was good, so therefore their shirts must be good. And I think that that's, um, <clears throat> it can often be true, and who's to say it isn't? But I think it's got more to do with marketing than it has to do with actual product. And like you, I think that different brands are very good at different things and i've never been a fan either of um one brand having the answer to everything um certainly with my own brand I, i've looked at venturing into different areas but um for as long as i'm running it i don't think we'll ever be a lifestyle brand i think we'll have um a small range of products um, with the stated aim of always trying to source and buy the best raw materials for that particular product. I mean, I'm wearing a I'm wearing a T-shirt today that we made, which has got absolutely nothing to do with outerwear, but I'm wearing a T-shirt made from Sea Island cotton. Some of your listeners will know exactly what that is it's it's probably the rarest and most beautiful cotton that you can buy in the world it costs an absolute fortune but i didn't want to make t-shirts for the brand unless we could offer that to our end users just the, the, the best product that we could possibly source um which is what we did Given that at the moment we're recording now, you are in fact sitting outside n next to the canal where your boat 
which you live on is moored. Yeah. I think we can say your T-shirt is actually outerwear at this uh, moment in time. Well, <laughs> I like that twist on it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. What is it that makes Sea Island cotton the best cotton you can buy? Um, it's interesting because when you read what people write about Sea Island cotton, um, you know, they, they'll say things like it's the rarest cotton. Well, yeah, fine, but that doesn't necessarily make it the best, does it? Um, then you will read some people that write it's hand-picked and that it's got um, better green credentials for the way it's looked after, treated, etc., and grown as well. Again, is that making it better for what, what ultimately makes something better is when you're wearing it, does it feel better? Does it last longer? Does it wash better? These are the things that really matter more than all of the... Am I allowed to use the word bullshit on your podcast, Nick? <laughs> you can say precisely what uh, needs to be said. Oops, I just did. Um, yeah, so all of that stuff about it being rare and hand-picked and that is true, but what actually makes it better, in my opinion, and I'm wearing one today, is it feels like a million dollars. Now, why is that? Well, the... I'm no expert and I'm no scientist, but the, 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 the length of staple of the actual, um, when they pick the cotton, it's got a longer, under a microscope, it's got a longer staple or a, a, longer, a longer smooth part, to put it simply, without barbs or hooks. And under a microscope, whether it's wool or cotton or any yarn, what gives it its feel is the, the, the combination of smooth parts to the yarn and then a barb, then another smooth part. And when those barbs are closer together, a fabric will feel not so smooth it'll feel rougher and then when the the staple of the yarn is longer the fabric will feel smoother that's the, that's true for cashmere it's true for merino wool and it's and it's true for sea island cotton as well T to get cotton to grow in that way um i know they've been experimenting um under controlled conditions in china but um to grow it naturally it's only in a small part of the Eastern Caribbean, I think Barbados and I've forgotten the other small island now, it, it will only grow successfully in, in this very small place in the world. And um, once you've then spun it into yarn, um, all of the Sian cotton is actually um, sent over to Switzerland to a very um, high-end specialist mill called i can't quite pronounce it it's spurry s-p-o-e-l-l-y and they have this really rather sophisticated machinery that can handle the sea island cotton and spin it into great fabrics um, that will be then woven for sh um, sh shirts trousers um that's the woven side and then the knitted side as well which is what which is how you make the t-shirt um so it's it's being able to take that raw material and then 
make it into a very usable fabric and the end product um, it it feels softer to wear it, it lasts a lot longer because the shorter barbs in a fabric are what cause the fabric to wear so when there are less barbs or hooks or rough parts if you like um, to wear out the fabric it actually lasts longer as well and um, the other quality of sea island cotton is and this is where i probably won't go any deeper into this because i don't really understand it but it feels cooler a lot cooler than your average cotton t-shirt and that's temperature cool, not Ray-Ban cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably think I look cool in it. So I'd, I'd leave my kids to tell me whether I do or not. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, um, it's one of those things where if you try to describe to somebody why a Bentley drives well, feels great, feels smooth and quiet on the motorway compared to um, a small cheap car you can't really convey it you have to give the car to someone to drive and then they think oh yeah now i can now i can see it and now i can get it and now i can feel it and i'm not exaggerating it's a little bit like that with with good quality clothing especially with the t-shirts that i'm talking about at the moment if you if i could get one on the on the back of your listeners it would do a far better job than my words are doing people would say oh yeah now i can see why mm. but as you pointed out sea island cotton fabric costs a lot more than uh, say sort of regular cotton fabric yeah hence the final product will be more expensive yeah but is it that much more expensive than, say, some brand T-shirt made of quite pedestrian cotton made in some low-cost place? It, hugely more, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like if, if one looks at what makes anything expensive in the world, T-shirt fabric, coffee, I'm just plucking ideas out of my head now, Um wood as i'm sitting on my boat i'm looking a lot of wood why is walnut more expensive than pine um it's usually a combination of scarcity uh the, the way something is finished or treated or crafted and it, all of those things in to a different degree in all sorts of products are what makes something more expensive and um yeah, Sea Island cotton along with other expensive fabrics. This is, a, this is a common misconception, actually. People often think that things are expensive because there's a bunch of people sitting somewhere making a whole load more money. I know that can well, be true. In some cases, <laughs> that is true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, the older I get, the more I do realize that you really, when you look, when you look into where something came from and why it feels as good as it does, or it tastes as good as it does, or it looks as good as it does, there's usually 
something gone into that product or process that can justify why it costs more. Um, that that's true with, as I said, fabrics, coffee. Um, I mean, you know, the, the big one for me, it seems like I'm going off on a tangent, but it kind of is related to what I'm saying is I have a sort of amateur interest in, in red wine. And for years you just think, well, how can a good bottle of Bordeaux be, well, I'm going to say 200 euros, not that I ever pay that, but, um, you know, you, and you can pay 10 times that as well, of course. How can a 200 pound bottle or 200 euro bottle of wine be better than a 10 euro bottle? How can a 200 euro t-shirt be better than a 10 euro t-shirt? And it really takes time to understand in the, uh, in the example of the wine, <laughs> any of your, any of your listeners will probably agree if they have an interest in wine, it just tastes better. But a t-shirt different from a bottle of wine in that the morning after you still have your t-shirt. <laughs> Yes, one would hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, and it doesn't ravage you. <laughs> doesn't age, doesn't age yeah. you. Yeah. So, so if Sea Island Cotton is the sort of best for a t-shirt. Yeah. If we're sort of moving into outerwear, mm. say we start on the outside, um, waxed cotton is waxed cotton just waxed cotton, or are there different grades and brands and weights and yeah what um, what is could you expect yeah i mean there are it's it's an interesting question nick the 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 best wax cotton that you could possibly buy sounds a bit odd to put it like this but you actually can't buy it <laughs> because there are there are cotton I, it's a two-stage process, as you know, with with wax cotton. The 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 producer of the wax cotton is not the producer of the cotton. So the 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 wax cotton plant will buy in the cotton, and then they treat the cotton. But it isn't the wax cotton company that actually weave the cotton. They buy it in, and. Um, so there are some excellent wax cottons out there. I mean, we, we use the best wax cotton that you can possibly buy, which is, a, um, again, talking about staples earlier, it's a long staple US-grown cotton, um, which is a higher quality, and we get that treated uh, with the wax process and we use a two-ply cotton which gives it a great handle and the the better the cotton the more that you will eventually get that authentic look from your wax cotton over time um anybody that owns one will know that um if they have an old one it just gets better and better it looks better as it gets older um th there there are a a new generation of wax cotton fabrics on the market that were the predominantly um they were manufactured or evolved 
due to price so you can get um a, ba a cheaper base fabric which is coated in wax cotton and it looks when it's on the hanger like a wax jacket the the difference is um the the cheaper ones they just they don't last as long and they never ever acquire that patina that aged look they they just look like a um a, a bottled green wax jacket with no cracks or or um, wear to it in 10 years from now if they're still going the uh, the, the the better the base fabric the more likely it is that you're going to get looks like one of those original one of those really cool looking old wax jackets um so yeah i think that uh it, it matters a great deal to me that we continue to just get the the best one we can however the wax cotton producers themselves um their argument is there's absolutely no point buying in the the most beautiful cotton in the world to then go and slap a load of wax on it because you it defeats the object um i i kind of disagree with that because i think the best cotton in the world for outerwear which is produced in switzerland um is a fabric that many of your listeners will know about it's called ventile and ventile is an interesting fabric because it it is actually totally waterproof because of how tight the weave is. They use a very fine yarn, and because it's so fine, it allows them to spin a tighter, a, tight, a tighter weave, if you like. And and again, the factory in Switzerland that produce it, they're the only people in the world that have this machinery to do it. The, the fine yarn that they use, if you put it on any other cotton weaving machine, it just keeps breaking. But because they can weave it so so dense and so compact nothing gets through it now things being what they are in this industry um you're not allowed to advertise it as totally waterproof which is crazy because it absolutely is and the reason for that is that um some 30 to 40 years ago i think it was probably gore-tex they devised this thing called a water column test, um, which is basically forcing water through a surface of about five centimeters, a five centimeter diameter surface. And they force the water down this column, rather like one of those coffee plungers. And then they measure at what point a droplet will come through the fabric. And clearly, if you try hard enough with anything, you can force water through it. Um, and the, I think the, um, I've not got all the numbers in front of me, but I think it's something like if you can force 7,000 millimeters of pressure onto a piece of fabric and no water comes through, then it's considered to be waterproof. Now, the interesting thing is that the fabrics like Gore-Tex, which is essentially a, a plastic, um, you you can achieve phenomenal numbers if you do that with cotton like ventile um you can force water through um 
at less than 7,000 millimeters per column pressure. And therefore, somehow, it, it was decided that that wouldn't be given the water. It, you were not allowed then to put a tag on the garment that said this garment is waterproof. But the last time I was in bad weather, I couldn't see any columns coming out of the sky pressurizing water through my jacket. What I saw coming out of the sky is rain. And yeah. I've... I've got Gore-Tex jackets, I've got Gore-Tex ski jackets, and I've got Ventile jackets in my own wardrobe, and I've got Ventile jackets in my own collection. If I go out for a four, five, six, seven-hour walk in a plastic jacket, or I go out for a six, seven-hour walk in a Ventile cotton jacket, both keep me dry with no water, no water penetration whatsoever, the benefit for me and the reason why we do Ventile in our collection is you still feel comfortable and cool and you're not, you're not, you've not sort of, you're not full of perspiration on the, you're not sweating on the inside. The, the, the breathable qualities of cotton are fantastic. And whilst I know breathability has been a buzzword in fabrics for years, um, the only reason they originally decided that they needed to have a, a breathable, a breathability measurement was because, well, put a plastic bag on and run up a hill. <laughs> if you put a bin liner over your shoulders and run up a hill, you'll be very wet very, very quickly. And one of the problems with um, PTFE or polymer plastic based fabrics is that that happens and whilst breathability figures are issued um <laughs> i haven't found one yet that gets even close to the the comfortable feeling that a ventile or a cotton garment can give you and it's not to say that ventile is the only cotton that can give you that but ventile is the only cotton that gives you both high protection in bad weather and breathability and and that to me is very important you know i expect the most waterproof uh, variant would be the the classic vintage style macintosh uh, rubber bonded cotton yeah which yeah. Uh, is basically just rubber yeah yeah but uh, you mentioned that ventile has its properties from the weaving alone yeah um i know they used to use a dwr durable water protection a carbonate based one and then they introduced a sort of eco version which was treated with i think paraffin wax yeah have they gone back to just plain cotton now you can buy both you can buy the plain cotton and um i i think that um and i hope i'm not misquoting them on this the the DWR finishing or the Teflon they used to use, and then, as you say, they found a greener way of doing it, was simply because the fabric over a couple of hours outside in bad weather would, would get wet on the outside. And um, whilst you could still stay dry wearing it, um, they were... Uh, 
It worked a bit like those old-fashioned oiled wool pullovers. They looked wet, but you were still dry on the inside. And I think that they felt that they would sell more fabric um, if the cotton looked dry and the water just ran off the surface. Mm. Um, but I, I buy it without a finish on it. And, um, well, I think that, to be honest, most people are wanting to keep dry when they put their jacket on for, you know, how long do we really go out for a walk in the rain? One, two hours? Um, if I was actually producing ventile jackets for, as I occasionally do for, for men and women that are going out for longer for all sorts of different activities, um, then... I, I will actually either I've got one jacket in the range where we do use the the, the the sort of water repellent finish that they use and that's a that's a sort of a high-end walking jacket and it's positioned as a as a technical walking jacket you know for people that want to go out at seven eight in the morning and not get back until tea time um, but really I've I've actually been out in both and I haven't got wet in either of them and I've been out for several hours. I just think that people prefer it to look dry as well. When you make a ventile jacket, do you use double ventile or just single layer? Double, yeah. Uh, we, we, and, and as you, I think what, you, what you're driving out there, it's actually true that um, Ventile themselves publish figures to show how long you can stay dry in a single layer and how long you can stay dry in a double layer. So they, they produce two weights. So we use the slightly heavier one for the outer fabric, and that will keep you dry for two to three hours. And then they, use a, they have a slightly lighter one, and we use that for the lining. And then when you combine the two together, you have a fantastic combination that will keep you, keep you dry for six or seven hours. So you, you can probably tell that I'm quite a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I think but yeah. one of the things that makes me a fan, Nick, and I mustn't sort of forget to say this, is that I do like our brand to, as far as possible, be using natural fibres. And that, that's something that um, I just feel more comfortable using. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's something that I, I think the sort of world of natural fibers has had a raw deal in the last 50 years um, with all of the scientific technological advances in fabrics, all plastic based. You know, everything we buy. Um, I, I just don't want to be a part of that, putting it simply. Well, that's a, that's a fair and good opinion. Um, to circle back a little bit yeah. to waxed cotton. Hmm. If you're browsing jackets in the shop, say waxed cotton jackets or, or online, is there any way to tell how good the fabric is? sort of what grade they have used in the jacket. Mm. And and I have to admit, looking at the selections available from Halley Stevenson's and British Millerain right now, there does seem to be a baffling array yeah. of fabrics on offer. The, the simplest way to tell 
if you're in a shop and you're looking is if you're um if you're a keen connoisseur of garments especially outerwear and i'm sure quite a few of my customers buy far more jackets from me than they actually need but they just love outerwear um i think you might possibly be knocking on the door of that school nick it doesn't sound entirely unfamiliar <laughs> i have to admit uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so one one of the things that uh, somebody with a keen eye for this sort of thing will immediately notice is that there is um, a drape or a handle or a feel of the fabric. It, it just looks a lot, lot better. It doesn't look... If you go to um, an, a sort of an agricultural farm shop where you can buy a wax jacket for 60 euros, there's this thing hanging on a coat hanger, lifeless. Um, it doesn't have any body. It doesn't have any... The, the drape or handle of the fabric just feels you can tell it's cheap and how can you tell it's cheap well um good good fabric will always um reveal itself to you in the way it falls off the hanger with the way it folds the way the sleeve hangs which i know has got obviously something to do with the pattern making as well um and a, and a cheap fabric will always hang badly um, I can't put it simpler than that. Uh, the, and, and I think that somebody that knows and looks a, at a lot of garments, uh, someone that buys a lot of garments, you, you, you know, I, I get customers saying to me that they can tell when something is good in terms of its fabric. And, they, and then when I say why, well, what is it? Why can you tell? Nine out of ten customers say, and they, this is absolute truth. They say, well, I don't know why I can tell. I can just tell. <laughs> <laughs> and then and that really happens a lot that people say that. Mm. Um, the, if you are listening to this and wondering about buying a wax jacket and how you can tell when you perhaps never bought one before is go up to the wax cotton and when when you crease the arm or crinkle the arm in your hands do do sort of nice sort of cracks appear in the fa in the in the wax in the oil do you get a nice sort of cracked patina or uh, something that gives wax cotton its character or do you squeeze it and nothing happens it just looks like a flat piece of green fabric usually the better fabrics the 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 former of those two things happen you get um a, a nice sort of cracks looking used pattern to the wax um as soon as you do that and they, and that's why they look better and better over time as well um and also the, the cheap it strikes me that yeah that some of the cheaper waxed cottons actually don't look like waxed cottons they look more synthetic yeah 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 they look like a plain I mean, this is the funny thing about wax cotton, really, is that I think one of the en enduring appeals to wax cotton fabric over a, more than a century is that it's one of the very few fabrics that you can see somebody wearing from 20, 30 metres away and you just immediately know it's wax cotton. 
you, you can't actually do that with so many fabrics. It, it has a unique identity. And it's partly why um, my former employees became as famous and as successful as they did because their product was immediately identifiable. And, and of course, it, it became the wax cotton jacket be, then became synonymous with the, the British royal family, um, ergo high society. Um, it became something that people very much wanted to identify with. And because it's so identifiable visually, um, it, it was an article of clothing people could buy which immediately gave them status or, or if, if you're into that sort of thing, that's what they felt was happening. You know, it's not, you can't really say that about a lot of garments unless you put a big badge on it somewhere. Hmm. It's also cheaper than buying a Range Rover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there has been a, a change in recent times. I think with regards to the type of wax used, yeah. uh, is it from wet to dry? Has that changed the properties of wax cotton a lot? Um, well, wet wax cotton jackets and dry wax cotton jackets, um, they, they've been around with us for a very long time now. I mean, you know, for at least 40 years, you've been able to buy dry wax jackets and wet wax. The original dry waxes were usually produced by using um, an artificial polymer-based chemical. Um, and the original wax cotton jackets had a sulfur-based um, process and um, paraffin-based as well. I don't mean sulfur. I mean um, paraffin and something quite nasty which i can't remember what actually changed in wax cotton produ production was about 15 years ago when um certain chemicals that were used in the process were banned and so the two or three major producers of wax cotton had to find new ways of getting that wax cotton feel so it wasn't so much that it evolved from wet to dry they've always kind of certainly for the last 40 years they've both been there it was that the wet wax changed in terms of the chemicals you could use to get that look to get that finish and the chemicals now are all water-based and uh, in the old days but there's some in the old days there was some pretty nasty stuff that went into it um and any of our uh, the listeners who are perhaps remembering their, their barber that they may have bought in the, the 70s or 80s, in early 90s, you, you, you could walk into a store that, that sold wax jackets in that, those days and the smell of the wax cotton jackets was overpowering. It was amazing. It was a bit of a love-hate relationship that people had with them because some people, of course, loved it and, and other people couldn't stand it. But stores that sold them in those days, I mean, you know, main, predominantly country stores, saddleries, gun shops, etc. They, they, um, their whole stores reeked of the stuff, you know. <laughs> um, I personally quite liked it, but um, with, the, with the new ways of producing, um, that changed. 
and and probably obviously for for the better you know is it are the new formulas formulations as good as the old ones um performance wise well here's a funny thing actually because the old way of doing it you could get a good look on a cheap fabric base the new the 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 new way the, the new water-based way of doing it you need a better fabric to get that sort of look um one of the jackets that i know you know that we do the the the, the heavier 14 ounce cotton that I've, i can't even remember the name of my own products nick that's bad isn't it we 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 use one where um well all of our products now have got the new water-based way of doing things uh, but you only get that look using the two-ply cottons. If you use the cheaper single-ply cottons, the the fabrics look very bland and very flat. And and I, and I think that the reason for it, and again, I, I'd probably much prefer that um, one of the wax cotton guys themselves were actually talking about this, but I think the reason for it is to do with absor absorption of the wax the two-ply fabrics actually absorb far more of the wax the wax coating than the single-ply fabrics. And that's why they can retain that character a little bit more. And a 14-ounce waxed cotton does have a certain heft to it. Yeah, yeah. But equally, the 8-ounce ones do as well. Um, they get a bit flatter when you get down to the summer weight 4-ounce um versions as well um which we don't use very often but um the, the traditional eight ounce wax as long as it's a a long staple two-ply egyptian cotton u.s grown cotton yeah you get a great look from them um but the the quality of base fabric has become more important since the method of producing the wax treatment changed so with the waxed cotton covered, what sort of lining would you be looking at for a quality jacket? Now, uh, yeah, I know some some user say a synthetic lining in the arms, yeah. cotton lining in the body, yeah. But there must be infinite variations. Well, the crazy thing about this, I, I talked earlier about this. Um, um, Gore-Tex induced water column testing in the late 70s, early 80s. The crazy thing is, wax jackets have been keeping people dry, really dry, for over a hundred years. And they, they, you know, whether it was uh, used on fishing boats or um, a whole host, host of different things. <laughs> they're a fabulous jacket to wear outdoors and the original ones had um a fairly hefty cotton lining in them that was actually even heavier than the outer fabric and that was partly to stop um wax penetration coming through the lining and onto your clothes um and then uh an interesting story there is that um, I remember there was um, some conversation. These two great sort of these these sort of um, big um, two big brands, Gore-Tex and Barber, 
met and had a discussion about producing the Barber Gore-Tex jacket. And um, Barber's point was well made and simple. And they said, why do we need you? We've been, keep, we've been keeping, keeping people dry for a hundred years with no complaints. And Gore-Tex said, ah, but you do not pass the water column test. I'm not quite sure what accent that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it sounded German, but I think Gore-Tex is American. <laughs> all of their scientific stuff came out of Germany, all of their testing bases and all that stuff, for, for Europe anyway. Anyway, the, there was a – Barbara simply said, we've been, keep, we've been keeping people dry for so long. We don't need to combine – our product with Gore-Tex. If anything, it would be a bit of a marketing disaster. And I agree with them. You know, if they suddenly started to put Gore-Tex in, what are they saying about the jackets before? You know, were they not good enough to keep people dry? Well, the fact is they were good enough to keep people dry. So that relationship, that marriage never happened. Um, and similarly now, I, I think that um, any decent wax cotton jacket um should the client should actually be able to buy it with a natural outer fabric wax cotton and a natural 100% cotton lining as well that's what i think i i actually to my shame <laughs> i experimented for 2 or 3 years using a gore-tex equivalent membrane in my jackets and of course yeah i i i thought that i would try saying to my customers now you've got the best of both worlds you've got this wax cotton jacket that we know keeps you dry and now i've put a, a gore-tex type barrier in there as well so that it'll pass any waterproof testing that you want to put it through um i was never really that convinced it was a good idea um and after two or three seasons, I dropped it because what I wanted to do was use um, the same uh, – the people I buy wax cotton from, they produce a, a cotton quality, which is um, – again, it's a very, very tight weave, and it makes it waterproof, and, it's, and I use it as a lining. It's the same base as the wax cotton outer. So our jackets have got um, the same – lining fabric and the same outer fabric the outer one is wax cotton coated and the inner fabric is the same thing without the wax cotton both with a very tight we two ply weave and those two layers um you know they work incredibly effectively together is it a lot more expensive to use a wax no a cotton lining than say a synthetic lining yeah, usually it is. Yeah, um, I mean the the we are essentially using an outer fabric as a lining, which um, gives most finance directors and buying teams and accountants and an, a heart attack, including my own. Uh, <laughs> you know, because outer fabrics are, I would say, traditionally you would you would. 
if I could speak for most brands and the costings that they have, you would pay at least 50% less for your lining fabric. And there's no real reason for that. It's just the way the industry has evolved. There, there are all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the industry that are, are really based on tradition. And usually, you know, if you can't see it and feel it, then you shouldn't pay very much for it. So linings have always had a raw deal, in my opinion, um, when in fact um, you, you, you really ought to be trying to buy the most expensive and effective, comfortable lining you can buy. And when I looked at all of the options open to me, the, I remember making a sample a few years ago and thinking, Actually, this garment is far better when I use an outer fabric as the lining. It makes a much better garment. So that's what we do. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's something I shall continue to do, I think. As I imagine once you've got your Sea Island cotton T-shirt on and you, you put your jacket on, I mean, you are going to feel it pretty close to your body whether the lining feels nice or not mm. you mean the uh, well, yeah sorry a while back i was doing uh, i was doing a, a review of the old barber border for my youtube channel and i i pulled out the the liner they were doing in the it must have been the 80s and 90s yeah uh, 100% acrylic yeah, it sort of crack crackles when you touch it. <laughs> yes, I know that very lining. That was pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is the funny thing. I mean, that brand in particular, they, you know, they, they it wasn't a fashion brand. They were making clothes for people to work in. That's what they made, you know, and it was, a, in a sense, hijacked by fashion. So, um, I think that the introduction of that acrylic lining must have happened in the 50s or 60s. And it was essentially down to farmers, predominantly, saying, we love our wax jacket when we're working, but we what, can you make it a bit warmer for us? Well, clearly to have used a shearling, a, a sheepskin lining would have sent the price through the roof. And, and that's the point, that they weren't trying to be they were making good, solid hot garments to be worn out on the fishing boats or in the field. And, you know, they had to be price sensitive. The, these were people that um, they were working people and they needed something to keep them dry and warm doing their jobs. And so in a way that acrylic liner came about because Barber could keep their keep their loyal customer base w warmer by using it. Whereas if they'd have said, yeah, we can make you warm, it'll cost you an extra hundred quid. They just said, well, no, thank you. <laughs> it's probably very washable as well. Absolutely. So could, that, uh, that's the point. Smell out. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Al although the acrylic lining would also, I mean, synthetic stuff does smell more when used. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Sort of <laughs> two-pronged thing yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. What what would have made for a really good lining, apart from well, you mentioned shearling. You mean now or back back in the day? I mean, 
I mean, now the um, I think that um, one has to say that what makes a really good lining also makes a more expensive product by quite a bit. Um, so my personal favorites that are, I like to use are um, I, I like to use a, mer a combination of a, a, a merino wool with an alpaca yarn, which is an 80% wool, 20% alpaca yarn. Um, only really woven in Austria. Uh, and again, it was a traditional, the, the fabric they call in Austria is called Loden, which now comes in a degree of different guises and colors and weaves and blah, blah, blah. But essentially, the combination of wool and alpaca together, um, they give it great warmth. The, the two fabrics just work well together when you weave them together. And um, again, if you wear the liner separately, um, wool, wool alpaca is incredibly water, water resistant as well and very, very warm. It's a beautiful fabric, but it's very expensive. Um, sheepskin shearling, yes. Again, great, great alternative, but um, 10 times the price of an acrylic body warmer. And um, then there are, of course, uh, a, an array of as you and your listeners will know, almost all fleece tops, fleece jackets, and by that I mean your typical, you know, Patagonia fleece or any Colombia, any number of fleece products, they're all plastic based, they're all polyester. And some of them look and feel warm. Um, there's a new generation of fleece out there now that look like they're artificial um, products before them, um, but are now made from um, either all wool or um, a combination of um, wool and polyester, wool and, wool and nylon. And some of the new breed of um, natural fiber fleece out there are fantastic but they're very expensive you know there's no no way around that um and it it, it all really you know talking about i know we're only talking about linings here but um i don't want to make expensive clothes that's not what i i want to make clothes from the best fabrics that just by virtue of what they cost, end up being quite costly items. And, you know, that use of the word expensive, um, I don't think if a brand uses the best quality, I don't think they are expensive. I think um, it's only expensive if you're paying a lot of money for something where most of the money you're paying over is in um if you look at the cost of a product if your money is going towards a fancy office or a marketing department or fancy advertising and a smaller percentage is actually going into the cost of the raw material and the way the product is made even where the product's made 
Oops, at this point, um, Gary's uh, power supply failed, so quick thinking was required. Seconds later, we were back, this time by mobile phone, so the sound is a bit different. I hope you can bear with it. Go on, Gary, take it away. So I would say that you can spend 60 euros for a product and it can be expensive if the raw materials in that product only came to four or five dollars, four or five euros, and the manufacturer of the product, the making of the product only came to four or five euros. And I can assure you that um, if you're paying 60 euros for a fleece top for want of picking any sort of garment out if you're paying 60 euros for a fleece top um the content of labor and raw materials in that top will be about 10 euros so i in my opinion that makes a 60 euro fleece top an expensive product it's six times more than the um raw materials and the labor now of course Everybody needs to make a profit. Everybody needs to make money. But value for money, it, you, you can have a product at 60 euros or 600 euros where there is a greater proportion of that cost attributed to the raw materials and the the place of manufacture or the, 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 the amount of work that has gone into it. So in, in my first example, let's say that you were only only 17% of your money is going towards the raw materials and labor. If you look at it like that, you just think, hell, more than 80% of what I've just spent is going towards marketing, um, offices, wages, yes, the dirty word profit <laughs> um if you could somehow know that more than half of your purchase the money to, from your purchase went into the actual raw material and labor of the product we all we all get that people need to make a margin and profit margin we we get that but it it's it's a in the latter case, if half of what you're spending is going towards the fabric and the labor, that is, even if you spent 600 euros and that happened, it's not an expensive garment. It's, an, it's a garment which is value for money. Whereas if you spend 600 euros on something and only 50 euros are towards the fabric and the making of the garment that's an expensive garment now other people will argue different then they'll say you know well we need to make a high margin because we spend a lot on um producing great imagery great videos um publicizing the brand across the globe or whatever but is that really making a better garment? I don't think it is. There's also the thing that you have, they have to factor in that they're going to be uh, reducing prices when it comes on sale. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, um, it, it's interesting. Um, uh, 
one of the brands I've um, admired over the years was Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S, not the not the um, <laughs> the courier company <laughs> who I have considerably less admiration for. Um, Hermes. I mean, when you see some of their products, these stratospheric prices, they're very expensive. And yet, when I look at the raw materials those guys use and the way in which their products are made, they're, they're simply sublime. They're beautiful. And, and an interesting thing about Hermes is they never have a sale. I was walking down madison avenue in new york a couple of years ago looking at all the different brands and i can't remember what month i was there it, it must have been january february and every window really well-known high-end global brands sale sale price reduction sale every window and i walked past hermes and it was just such a contrast clean pristine windows no stickers in the windows um of course expensive and of course um it's only a small number of people that can can buy their product but you know i, I don't i don't want to sound elitist or culturally elitist the, the thing that may stands out about them as a brand is they just make good kit they make you know really really nice things and they're not I don't believe that they are necessarily doing what a lot of brands do and hiking the price for 80% of the year because they know that they're going to have to, um, you know, reduce it drastically in the sale. And um, there are some amazing figures out there that show that brands make almost as much money in sale time as they do for the rest of the year and and you know this this sort of i don't know whether you have it where you live but we have this sort of phenomenon of the outlet stores in britain uh, and of course i know that in america as well and um the margins that the that lots of brands make in the outlet stores is as good, if not better, than the margins they are making in their in their main stores or with their main products. Um, and often that happens because um, brands are actually making for the outlet stores. The original concept was that it was exactly that; it was an outlet for things that were left over at the end of the season or or just things that simply didn't sell and you discounted them and people flocked to the outlets because they wanted to have to own to buy something from a nice brand at a lower price uh, as that became more and more successful um lots of brands decided that it what they would now do is actually make for the outlet store um, and and you know, I can think of several brands who have, uh, I mean, it's amazing, but um, they have a different color label for their outlet. And it, it's not commonly known, you know, you can, you, you can go to one or two stores and 
yes, it's the name of the brand, the, the designer brand or the fancy name that you wanted to buy. But the label in the garment denotes that that was actually made for the outlet store. Is there a, a lesser garment than you'd expect? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in a way, I feel like I'm being critical of my own industry, and I guess I am. Um, it's it's big business, isn't it? You know, um, it, it's a world that I am not in and don't really understand that well. Um, but it's a world I don't really want to be in either. I guess it sort of comes down to whether you're in it for i mean to put it bluntly sort of for the money or whether you like making a good product a sort of left yeah. brain and right brain thing it, it, it is a bit i mean I, I, I tell you a funny little story um that um might interest your listeners i i, I in a former life was um a professional road racing cyclist based in france um i wasn't very good my career didn't last very long um but i <laughs> <laughs> did i did what i could uh, and i remember going into um my team manager's office and at this point your listeners are thinking where the hell is this guy going with this story um but it is related and i walked into the team manager's office and he said to me um okay why are you doing this this bike this whole bike racing thing well uh, you know i don't know what i said as a 20 year old i'm i'm passionate i love it blah blah, blah. and he said look if you want to win money you won't win races if you want to win races you might win some money and the parallel to me there is that if i'm only doing this for the money i don't think i will create the kind of unique brand that i want to create because if i was doing this for the money first of all i wouldn't be making in the uk um i'd be going to a low-cost labor center using slightly less expensive fabrics and using my designs and the concept of the brand and selling it at cheaper prices but that would lead to english utopia being it, i mean i would say this wouldn't i but i feel it would become just another brand amongst many with not really that many unique selling points to it um other than the the design of the product itself but you know i think you need more than that these days there's lots of brands got very very good designs out there you need you need more than that um if i do it because i <laughs> to use the analogy i want to win races and not the money the equivalent is i want to make the best stuff i possibly can from the best fabrics i possibly can I believe that that will, over time, give us an identity that we just make nice kit and we make it in the UK, we make it locally, we're not flying cartons and cartons and pallets and pallets of products, tens of thousand miles of miles across the globe. 
Um, and, I, and I'm not particularly nationalistic. I'm not somebody that would say we're giving, you know, jobs to English people. And that's not why I'm doing it. Um, I'm doing it because I think it makes sense, especially in the 21st century, to be making things as close to home as possible and not flying them across the planet. It just makes sense. And I've I coined this phrase that I'm fond of using. I don't want to be a spreadsheet brand. And what I mean by that is that uh, many, many brands never really come into contact with the what, what this industry is all about, really. The, the, the choosing the fabrics, making the fabrics, making the product, being involved in making the products um a lot of it it's um it can be run from um an office and a laptop and a spreadsheet and analyzing data crunches num crunching numbers last year 70 percent of our sales were in black so let's make black in the collection this year and you know and they never see the factories where these things are made um that's not the kind of brand i want to be to me, it seems quite wonderful to be making in such small numbers that you actually know the names of your customers and you're making this jacket for that person pretty much one at a time without the efficiencies of making 200 at a time. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that, that that's where I feel, the hap feel happiest. Um, I have got my fingers burnt going down the other business model in years gone by where you are committed to meet um factory minimums without necessarily knowing that you've sold everything that you're going to have to make um and there is often no way around the problem because um if you didn't order the minimum you were going to have to pay more or even worse the factory would simply refuse to make if you were going to pay more, it was often the case that it was a lot more and, um, you know, you were <laughs> eventually making a loss. Um, so there's no point doing that. And and so, therefore, you you do what every brand does. You, you meet the factory minimums. And then most brands I've ever known at some stage, if not all the time, have an issue with stock. And hence the original idea for the outlets that we talked about earlier. Um, I never have a problem with stock. It's not something I have to worry about now. We make everything ourselves and they are made. Often the customers are happy with the specs and the designs that we give them, but we can accommodate, you know, sleeve lengths, back lengths, all, all sorts of different things. Um, special customer requests is not a problem. Um, and it, it almost feels sometimes whether, whether or not this is, um, we're getting too deep into, uh, <laughs> these things. The, the, the idea that we are very artisanal and making locally has an immense appeal for me. You know, and I do wonder, I really do wonder whether over the next 
50 years in the industry, how are things going to be made in 50 years and where are they going to be made? Um, the, the industry hops from continent to continent chasing cheap labor. And what tends to happen is that those areas of cheap labor become very, very busy. Um, they reach their capacity and more. And so inevitably, factory prices rise. So then what happens is the, the big brands move to the next best country where prices are still low. And then they become inundated with orders and their prices rise. So what happens? I mean, some people might say, oh, well, we'll never run out of cheap labor centers. Well, <laughs> there are all sorts of questions that that throws up. Should there be cheap labor centers? Should there be? I bet there are. And, you know, will we run out of places to make things? And then what do we do? When there are no places to go anymore where you can make a t-shirt for a dollar what then will the 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 big players start to develop um you know manufacturing strategies closer to home inevitably it might even mean that we all pay a little bit more for our products as well you know the 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 percentage of our incomes that go towards our clothing purchases might rise or we might simply buy less. Um, and it, it, it's fraught with difficulty, all of this, because then, you know, there's the argument that some of the places that we make things are providing much needed work for people, um, which I get too. But then there is a question of exploitation as well about who's really making the money here. Could you afford to pay more than you are? You know, if your if your net profit uh, as a brand is, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 percent. Could your net profit be 13 percent and pay your factories more? I don't know. I'm not an economist. I'm not. Um, I'm just asking the question. I think it's pretty telling when the owner of Zara is one of the wealthiest men in the world, that clearly he didn't become that wealthy without exploiting sort of his entire firm and everyone who makes for them. Yeah, I, I would I would say pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And there are countless examples of that. Um, I, 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 again, we're, we're, we're talking about a, a fair distribution of profit here um most of the people i work with they totally get it that it was my idea to do this brand and it's my designs etc that that get the work that get the sales and so they kind of don't mind if i earn more than them which funnily enough i don't at the moment um and, you know, I'm not somebody that's saying oh, that, you know, whatever profit we all make should all be shared equally. I, I'm actually saying that it should be fairer than it is for for my for my business. If we were ever in the situation to um, to grow the business well and have, you know, 
excess profits at the end of the year to do something with, why shouldn't the people that helped me get the brand where it is share in some of that? And all too often, it just doesn't seem to happen in that way. You know, and then there's this sort of, I think it's a myth or a misconception or a misunderstanding that if you if you reward the workers too much, they go soft on you. It's a completely nuts and crazy idea. You know, you've got it's, to it's keep... the same sort of people who send their kids to bed without supper if they've been naughty. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't overpraise them. They'll go soft. They won't work as hard. You've got to keep them keen and pushing and pushing. You know, fuck that. Just give them a give them a bit more of the pie, and then watch how they'll reward you. How easy is it to find? the people you need to make things in the uk now very very good and a very interesting question nick the people are there but the industry has notoriously treated them badly over a number of years low wages um repetitive processes and frankly tying into what i was saying earlier not really involved involving them in what the business is about and making them feel a part of it so you know that there are there is there are people that are putting in zips in a jacket from eight in the morning until five at night and they're incentivized so they call it by working faster and harder to put more zips in in that time then they have goals and targets and whiteboards on the wall and look how good you are you've um achieved more than last week and now you're the employee of the month doesn't that make you feel good we're not giving you any more money but you are the employee of the month <laughs> mm. um so what i found interesting is as i've gone out there and tried to find as i have done skilled people to do what we do the the amount of times that um a, a man or a woman has said to me oh yeah 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 i can i can i can make great tailored jackets i can i can sew wonderful pockets or zips or whatever i can do these things but now I work in an ice cream store or I work in a, a shop. Oh, why is that? Oh, well, you know, the, the work in the factory, I, I had a horrible boss and the wages were poor and they worked me to the bone and I never really felt appreciated. So I went to work for, <laughs> I do this now. I work in a call center or this and, and, and they, so the skills are still there, but there was nothing appealing to them and the, you know, if you take sitting at a sewing machine doing the same job for eight hours a day, five days a week, or sitting in a warm call center on the phone, which can, I imagine, be soul-destroying as well, even a call center has an appeal <laughs> compared to... 
Well, I, I just think that, um, you know, the, the way in which we mass produce garments can only be done if you break it down and people do specialize in one operation. But at what cost? I mean, you know, this sort of robotic way of treating humans to produce goods is fine if and it works. But at a cost you can't easily measure. You know, you, you, nobody follows that person home when they are saying to their wives or their husbands, I hate my job, but hey, it pays the bills. So I have issues personally with how um, people are treated in the industry and the sort of skills and jobs we should be asking them to do. And um, as soon as you talk about, um, you know, making their hours a bit kinder or a variation in their skills or, you know, it, it is going to cost you in terms of how much you can produce. It's going to slow things down. But on the other side of the coin, you might have a more, a happier employee that stays with you for longer, that likes their work and stays in the industry. Um, and I think one brand I admire in Britain that seems to, I don't really know very much about them, but they seem to be able to, um, they've addressed this, is uh, Burberry. I mean, Burberry have got a healthy manufacturing division in the UK. And I, I know that I do know somebody that works for them and they, on the whole, appear to have a happy workforce. But they've broken down some of the old fashioned ideas of how things are produced and given people more involvement um, and, and, and a, a wider degree of skills, a, a wider skill set, if you like. Sort of comes down to spreadsheets versus humanity again, I think. I think it does, yeah. And um, I do worry that we've lost our way so much in that respect that we are, you know, humans are a product of a spreadsheet rather than what what we really ought to be all about, and that's caring for each other and making sure that if we work together we're all okay not some of us are okay you know if you have a workforce of i don't know a hundred machinists and you make a whacking profit at the end of the year you don't just give them a pat on the back and a box of chocolates at christmas <laughs> It's almost insulting. You know, treat them properly. And I feel that that's, I mean, despite what I've said, I'm quite optimistic about the industry um, for the future. And I, and I think that, you know, okay, so brands are going through this phase at the moment where everybody likes to talk about their green credentials. Um, I think a time will come where what gains respect for a brand is when people see 
that they treat their people well. And that, that's actually not used really as a, a marketing tool as such at the moment, because who can? <laughs> but eventually, as brands perhaps put the, the human element higher up the list in terms of how they treat their people, I think they, they ought to be proud to be able to say that that's what they do. Yeah. That's some deep, dark thoughts there, Gary. I know. I All my life I go off in tangents, Nick. I <laughs> get excited <laughs> about something. There was one, one small point which seems utterly, utterly trivial now, which I wanted to sort of um, circle back to. Uh, yeah sort of to complete our uh, quality check of a piece of outerwear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel yeah. almost a bit embarrassed after the heartfelt state of uh, the nation uh, talk. <laughs> but um, when it comes to hardware, yeah, what's good, what's bad, what's uh, what should you look for? Okay, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I presume you mean when you're looking at a jacket, the the buttons, the zips, the the the, the bits and bobs on the jacket. That's what you mean, isn't it? Yeah. I, I know. I know a lot of people see a YKK zip, and that is sort of pretty much the best that you can find. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Or at least that's what we're told. Um. Yeah. The. The, the most obvious thing that people should look for is ease of use. Do you remember those old-fashioned adverts that VW ran where they had that, that kooky scientist guy just with his ear to the door and he was just cl opening and closing the door 50 or 60 times to just get the right noise of the door? <laughs> I mean, that, that's exaggerating the point, but... Uh, people should actually, when they're looking at the hardware of a jacket, does the does the popper or the snap fastener work really easily and does it feel secure? When you do the zip up, does it have a, a solid secure feel when you zip it up or does it feel a little bit weak? Um, I mean, the best example on zips for a hardware, for example, is I'm utterly amazed how terrible zips are on luggage airport luggage every I, I was in a store recently looking at looking at luggage every single brand had a crap zip all of them and, and it's the one piece of it's the one item in our lives where you probably need that to be far more reliable than you do on a jacket that um, suitcase is going to pop open at the worst possible moment. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't. Maybe I've been looking in the wrong places, but all the brands I was I was looking at, they were using these cheap nylon spiral zips. I was amazed. Um, so I, I think that um, when it comes down to hardware on uh, clothes, it's usually the first thing is the zip, then it's the buttons or the poppers, the, the hanger at the back, which you use to hang the jacket up. Um, and like we've said earlier, uh, you, you can just tell whether it's good quality or not, you know. I mean, it, even with good quality items, um, have they been applied properly? I mean, we, we got it wrong 
um, last year we bought some very nice um, brass neck hangers on check for the for the back of the garment um and we thought yep yeah, they're good they they're, they're robust and solid as they are and we, we put them in the the jackets and then we realized that because of the weight of some of our jackets the chain simply wasn't strong enough uh but we thought we it was a good quality chain but we needed to buy a heavier quality so not only does the uh, hardware look good or feel good? Has it been applied and put into the product properly? You know, because you can ruin a good piece of hardware by um, not, not not applying it well. You know, um, that's important. Um, and I think the the the, the biggest one for me really is the zip um the i think the best zips in the world are made in switzerland by a company called riri um that, that we buy from um and they are i mean they cost a fortune but you can tell as soon as you use one that this it, it's hard to imagine that the zip enhances the the potential for the customer to buy a product but it actually can you know when somebody puts on a jacket and if the zip feels really smooth and looks great um it, it can be a clincher something as simple as the zip can be you know i've seen people try on jackets before now where it has a cheap zip in it and it just puts them off they're fiddling with it trying to get it undone or fasten it up or whatever I have to admit that uh, a really heavy-duty brass re-re zip is something I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. They they uh, we use what's called a size ten zip in our wax jackets and our tweed jackets. Uh, the industry norm is a size eight, but we kind of want to beef them up a little bit. Um, and a size ten re-re antique brass zip costs about nine times more than the ykk equivalent a ykk zip to go in a wax jacket is about two euros a white uh, and a riri zip is about 18. Uh, they use a harder brass they also polish it at the end which is what makes it feel um smooth so they you know those machines that you polish your shoes with in a hotel <laughs> yeah yeah well we retake all the zips to the local five-star hotel no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> yeah they have a machine like that and they hand, they polish all of their zips to give it that great feel so they uh, and then the the teeth are clamped to a better quality tape and the clamping of the teeth is a, is a higher a more solid process as well so there's a lot of work and process goes into that product to to make it what it is which is people would just never know you know and a ykk zip is a a, a mass-produced product without very much finesse on a cheap polyester-based tape it works well and they've got a global reputation um but you know 
it's a different it's a different thing altogether it's uh you know they've got manufact they've got low cost manufacturing bases all over the world um re re zips are made in switzerland in um in a time honored artisanal way which which i admire you'd never really know unless you know or stopped up took the time to feel it yeah 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 i i recently used those words in um i think i was putting our m65 ventile military jacket on instagram and i was trying to think how the hell i could talk about ventile quickly on an instagram post and i just wrote oh if you know you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> which, which can be one of the most which can be one of the most annoyingly patronizing <laughs> things someone can say <laughs> i know i know i just i think i was feeling lazy but um yeah. i felt that for an hour and a half i'm just speaking heart on my sleeve stuff really nick that's all i can say some of it i hope they will find interesting yeah i'm sure they will okay gary thanks for the great insight into what makes a garment good and uh, the tips on what to look for very much appreciated um anything you'd like to add in the final moments other than to say it's been a a pleasure to talk to you again nick i always enjoy your other podcasts when when they come up and i have the opportunity to listen to them and um hopefully speak to you again soon thank you and uh, bye bye gary bye nick thank you bye That was all for this week's episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Gary Newbold of English Utopia for being this week's guest. You can find him on the web at englishutopia.com and also as English Utopia on Instagram. Go check him out. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me, email address is welldressedad at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram as welldressedad or my blog at welldressedad.com. There's some 600 articles now from the past eight years, so um, you can get stuck in if you like. If you'd like to support the podcast, suggest a guest, or whatever, do get in touch. Welldressedad at gmail.com. And uh, until next time, bye-bye.